Indeed, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us, and we thank you, Lord, for your servant Paul and the way you've worked through his, um, his letter to the Corinthians, this first letter that we have, and the way we've seen about this um, vertical love that you have for us that spills out into this horizontal love that we share for e- with each other. And we thank you, Lord, today as we step into discussion of the resurrection, this great chapter, um, this beautiful chapter illustrating our hope in you. And we ask, Lord, that even as um, Paul and the Corinthians set their hope in you 2,000 years ago, would you give us grace once again today, 2,000 years later, to continue to set our eyes upon you, um, to look to the future with great hope, um, and to live with great hope today. And we ask this for your glory's sake, and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, so we have um, been in this book for five months, right? So um, some of the things, who, what, where, when, why, I'm going to actually invite you to talk about. Any thoughts that you want to add about um, who this book is written to, where they were living, why it was written, um, when it was written? Any thoughts that anyone wants to share? I won't call on you specifically, but... I'll turn around so that you don't, you don't have I see me staring at you. Yeah. 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 Let's see. I'll draw it if I can. Thank you, Gordon. So it was written um, to a very diverse group of people who lived in a very in a town that was located right on an isthmus, which, if you remember geography is a little tiny um, spit of land like um, between two greater land masses. And Corinth had, uh, as, a har- as a place with harbors on both sides of that tiny bit of land, there were boats coming in and going out from the east and from the west. And in the Mediterranean Sea, they found it um, sailing to be so dangerous that they wanted to make sure this was such a great place for them. They'd, um, care, they'd land on one side of the ha- one harbor, they'd carry their goods across the harbor, they'd put them on another boat and head west to Rome or head then east um, into the eastern part of the Mediterranean because it was easier than going around the, the other part of the land, this part of the land that would have stuck out into the Mediterranean where there were known to be lots of shipwrecks. And we actually think that Paul might have been shipwrecked because once he went around. So, um, so this place, just think sailors. Think New York City with all its harbors. Think of the diversity coming in and going out. Think of all the different peoples. And it was a Roman colony in Paul's day and age that had, um, it had a lot of um, people who were able to ascend in society to make their own living, um, to get away from some of the hard and fast social stratification that existed throughout the Roman Empire. So um, it was very an economically mobile group. It was culturally diverse and, as we can see, religiously diverse, spiritually diverse. What were some of the, anybody remember some of the things that they were plagued by in Corinth, some of the false beliefs that affected um, their Christianity when they became Christians? Gnosticism. Thank you, Trudy. (laughs) <laughs> do you want to say anything about Gnosticism? Or do you want me to say anything about Gnosticism? Okay. Um, just think, I, the language nerd in me loves the GN and the KN, right? So Gnosticism, I just get so geeky about this. You have the... Um, so this, our English word for this philosophy or, or mysticism is really what it was. It was all about this kind of mystical secret knowledge. And you see it in our, linguistically, the K is like the G. Um, and it's sort of transmogrified. Ooh, what a fun word. I don't know that I'm using it correctly. But, so Gnosticism was this idea that there was this secret knowledge that had to be obtained. There were insiders and outsiders. And accompanying this secret belief, this secret knowledge that you had to, you know, peer into that only the initiated would get to know about. There was also this extreme sense of, um, of a point of view of the body and of things of the flesh. Material things were seen as being yucky or bad. 
Um, and so if the, if the stuff of the flesh was yucky or bad, remember it led to two extremes on either side, right? Anybody remember the two extremes? Anything goes. Yeah, Judy, anything goes. Yeah, or nothing goes. Anybody remember the big fancy words we used for that? Asceticism. Does someone want to give an example of asceticism? Ooh, sorry. Don't eat, don't smoke, don't, don't drink, don't, don't do anything. Even, we see in chapter 7, even Paul has to assure them, no, you can, within marriage, you can actually have sex. Don't withhold from your partner, from your spouse, simply because you think that the stuff of the body is bad. No, this is good. This is where it's meant to be lived out. So he's trying to correct that extreme of if the flesh is so bad, then we can't do anything in the flesh. You see it today, we see it today in... Honestly, in extremes, like, I almost um, hesitate to say it out loud, anorexia, you know, I'm going to starve my body and make it become this ideal that exists in my head, Um, this kind of denial of the flesh to to the extreme. Um, And it's not God's design or God's desire for us, of course. And the other extreme was licentiousness. Anybody want to give an example of that? (laughs) <laughs> gluttony. gluttony yeah that would be especially if we're talking about anorexia Gordon that would be the swing side of it would be extreme gluttony um, and, and you even see that almost in bulimia right I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engorge myself um, you saw it too in chapters 5 and 6 with the sexual immorality that's going on in Corinth some people were even going to see prostitutes and Paul's saying you can't do that but they thought they could do it because if, it, if the body doesn't matter, then what you do in the body doesn't matter, right? So um, looking at this Gnosticism and um, how that affected them, we see I'm actually going to give you on your handout today, I gave you a different kind of outline from what we've been doing because as we get to chapter 15, it's as though Paul is getting back in some ways to where he started from. He's getting back to some theology here. And we've seen that even in his correction of these misbehaviors, his goal is always to correct their thinking. He doesn't care that they simply toe the line behaviorally. That is not um, what he cares about, even though that's very often more what we care about. We care about the appearances of things, the appearance of behavior, especially as parents and grandparents, right? I, I wouldn't mind so long as they just came to church. But what's the good of them coming to church if they don't believe? Um, Or what's the good of them behaving if they don't actually believe? Paul is, of course, getting to the belief underneath this, but he spent a lot of the middle part of this letter addressing specific behaviors. Um, So we started out at the beginning in chapters 1 through 4 with him going over the gospel, reminding them of what the gospel was, how the gospel seems like folly to the human mindset and the human perspective, and yet God's folly is wiser than human wisdom. And it's something that he keeps reiterating beautiful passages about, um, about this paradox of God's folly that is so wise. And it's epitomized in the cross. Again, he's reminding them of what the gospel is and how the gospel is, um, is centered upon This God who is so contrary to the Greek idea of God, a God who would humble himself to sacrifice himself, to give himself up for his own people in the flesh, who would be made flesh. Flesh is yucky, yet God himself was made flesh. Um, It is good. The flesh is made good through his atoning death and resurrection. Um, Okay, so wisdom versus folly was something he talked a lot about. In those verses, again, to counter the false teaching, they have these leaders, not just visiting teachers. The visiting teachers aren't as bad as their own leaders and teachers within their group. And these leaders and teachers, remember, they valued being spiritual so much, um, and they valued having these gifts of the Holy Spirit that they became, became so arrogant. And I love the word he uses for it. Remember the verb he uses for their arrogance? Being puffed up. 
And I like to say like a Macy's Day Parade float. You know, they're just puffed up and looming and lording their spirituality over the whole group and causing divisions in the midst of um, the church in Corinth. And Paul denounces them and reiterates the gospel, which is different from what they were um, preaching and teaching. Okay, and then in verse in chapters five and six, we saw too that he was talking about um, some specific behavioral things: immorality and lawsuits. And those things he heard about because of reports that came to him from other people in the church who said who were appealing to him, Paul, do you know that this is going on? Um, come and help us. And so he's going to give his judgment and he's going to um, uh, tell them what to do. But again, even as he tells them what to do, one of our frustrations with it is he doesn't tell them as clearly. He's so kind about it that he'll, he'll say, you know what to do, and then he'll explain what they're supposed to do. Um, but he doesn't ever command them, do this. I tell you, do this. He does in some ways, but then he'll counter it and really appeal even to the old man within them that's going to rebel anyway. So he will lay down the law, but he really does it so graciously that he also tries to appeal. Again, that's like um, trying to feed a two-year-old. You know, you can have five more bites and then you can get down from your chair, but then don't you do the airplane and try to get those five bites into them through, (laughs) through, um, through a lot of grace, right? even though you still stick to those five bites. But you use a lot of grace to get those five bites into their stubborn little mouth. So that's really what Paul is doing in these chapters where he's giving, laying down the law, essentially telling them what to do, but again, very graciously. Chapters um, 7 through the end of 10, basically, we saw he talks about issues that they've asked him about, marriage, divorce and pagan food and do you remember I'm not even going to write this since it's on your handout but do you remember that in those his ethic was of love that though they had freedom freedom to do certain things they must be constrained by their love for one another that they wouldn't cause a weaker brother or sister in their midst to sin based on their own actions and their own special knowledge that they have. He's urging them to love one another and to curb their own freedom in Christ um, so that others might be lifted up and strengthened in their faith. And then we looked at this. We finished this section last week. We talked about um, basically chapters 11 through 14, which all deal with issues in public worship. We talked about, and again, it picks up this idea of freedom and what do we use our freedom for? Are we so glad that we have our freedom in Christ that we're going to do whatever we want, even though it might cause another brother or sister to sin? Obviously, no. So he talks about that with veils. Ladies, when you pray or prophesy, cover it up. Um, Be modest. Even though you're free in the Lord, your freedom doesn't flout social conventions. And those veils were, um, were a sign of respectability in public in that day and age. And so for women to just take off their veils in church um, suggested sexual immorality. It suggested a looseness that they really didn't want to hint at. And Paul's reminding them, no, really, you're free to do this, but don't, don't re- no, really, don't do it. Because it's not good for your brothers um, in Christ. Then he talks about the Lord's Supper, and he goes even more seriously about the Lord's Supper. Um, The veils are a minor issue compared to what they've been doing with the Lord's Supper and how awful um, they've been in um, some eating before others even get there. Treating it um, as the way they treated social meals with all of this codification of status. And he's denouncing them for it. He's saying it's not even the Lord's Supper because of the way you um, celebrate it. And then he talks about gifts, and this is what we looked at these last couple of weeks. He, um, chapters 12 through 14, he is essentially, it appears as though they are exalting tongues over the gift of prophecy. And we talked about both those gifts. Hard to understand, you know, what are they? How do we, um, their church life was very different than our church life today. And how do we understand that? Well, um, he's also talking about the equality of those gifts in the unity of the body of Christ, even though they are diverse gifts given out by God's own Holy Spirit. Um, And so, of course, in the midst of that, we have that beautiful chapter that we read from this morning on, uh, on love, and that love is the ethic of action. 
within the church. Um, love is the ethic of action among those who share in spiritual gifts. Again, not to be puffed up, but to be humble and, um, and really to be silent if, um, if it's another person's turn to talk. And so they talk about that silence for tongues without an interpretation so that there can be a mean, so that it can be intelligible speech that happens in church. He talks about silence when, um, one pro- from one prophet when another prophet gets a word. And then he talked at the end of chapter 14 about silence for women who are interrupting. Remember we talked about that tough passage and talked about these interrupting women who don't know what's going on and they're going to interrupt what's going on to find out what's going on. And he's saying, ladies, for the sake of everyone, wait, do ask, but ask at home. Don't ask in the middle of church and interrupt what's going on. And I gave you a contemporary example of that, didn't I? So that's where we are. I'll take a breath. Any other thoughts or questions about that? Things perhaps this week that you've thought about in reflection after last week that you want to share or talk about or ask? Anything? Where did you get that word interrupting? Did that come from the Bible or did you just, you're just using that to describe? I'm using that. a very negative connotation, the interrupting woman, as opposed to women should keep silent in churches. I'm actually, I see it, I see it as more positive. You're you're telling us they were interrupting women. Yes, I am. And and that's based on what we know about the context. That's based on what we know about the context within this structural passage in chapter 14. Um, It's it's also, again, my way, frankly, of, of understanding this is not a universal statement. Paul has already said in chapter 11 that there are women who are praying and prophesying in church. Some in their churches would say women cannot say a word. Um, I know even of some churches where women are not allowed to even read from scripture aloud in church. And I'm sure you know of those churches as well. And so... It's just a cultural thing. It's not that there's anything wrong with those women. It's just that just, this is just the way it's going to be. I would disagree. I would say there was something wrong with the women in particular. The women didn't have, and I talked about two particular situations. First of all, the women were not educated the way the men were. So they weren't literate. They weren't um, even, it wasn't seen as being a valuable thing either in Greek culture or in Jewish culture to educate women. And it's only under Jesus that we see this possibility of women becoming learners. The word for disciple is learner. And so when we see Mary of Bethany in Luke chapter 10 sitting at the feet of Jesus, She's sitting to learn. People don't talk about that with Martha's outrage at what Mary's doing. It's not just that she's not helping to cook and clean up in the kitchen. It's that she's doing something that's not allowed. She is sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. And women hadn't been allowed to do that. So the fact that women are allowed to learn is a great thing. But they hadn't learned um, yet. or They hadn't had the opportunity yet to learn in this newfound faith. So there's that aspect. And then another commentator points out that in Corinth, Because of all of these, remember the Isthmus and all of these ethnicities coming into one place, Greek was like the English of the day. It was the language spoken by so many people of so many different cultures. And yet their cradle language was going to be different. And so women who were confined mostly to the home did not have the opportunity, or most women who were mostly confined to the household, did not have the opportunity to get out the way the men did, to be able to learn this Greek that was going to be the lingua franca or the common language. And so here they are in worship, and they're worshiping in Greek. So there's also this possibility that these ladies didn't know what was going on. So what are they going to do? They're going to ask the person closest to them that they know the best, and that's, of course, their husband. And it's and Paul is saying, no, stop. Ladies, stop. Interrupt. Because when you ask, then it's, um, it's disrupting everyone in the worship setting. Imagine that there were only as many people as this, and there were three side conversations going on. It's hard. <laughs> the person talking can't keep talking. And so that's why Paul's telling them to be silent. Does that help, Mary? And, and again, my, in understanding it in that light is actually a freedom for us from interpreting it as a universal statement for all women in all times, in all places, in all churches, which I don't think is what Paul intends based on what he said elsewhere in this letter about women praying and prophesying in chapter 11 and also what we've seen in other, other of his epistles. Okay, any other thoughts about that? Yeah, it is. 
Yeah. Well, it's hard. That's taken out of context also, chapter 11, and talking about headship. And then also another big one, another big passage that's taken and understood out of context is 1 Timothy 2. Um, to, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And that word for authority is very different than the word used anywhere else. It's not the normal word used for authority in the New Testament. That word, ex- um, that word is exousia, but the word in um, in First Timothy two, it's actually a domineering domination. I do not permit a woman to domineer a man. Right? Okay. Any other thoughts or questions about this? It, it, in the commentary in my Bible, it says that Paul is likely forbidding women to speak up and judge prophecy, which is what he had just mm-hmm. been talking about. Times mm-hmm. of prophecy. Um, this activity um, and the, was what activity mm-hmm. in the immediate context. And that would subvert the male leadership. Mm-hmm. Prophecy, I guess, has something to do with the idea of what the right. Yes, Mary, but you're, what I'm going to say, and this is where you're going to find a different thing in every study Bible, and you're going to find a different thing in every commentary. You're going to find different interpretations of this because some people are going to interpret it for all time and all places, and some people are going to interpret it differently. And my bottom line is I don't believe it's universal. And so trying to understand how it's not universal, part of it is to uphold chapter 11 in light of chapter 14 where women are praying or prophesying. If women are praying or prophesying, then they're among the prophets that are testing what's being said. And so then they can't be the ones who are... Then that, then that interpret. Do you see how that would invalidate that interpretation? Just in light of what, what else is there in chapter 11. Does that help a little bit? I hope. Okay. It's hard. It's one of these passages where a lot of, you know, there's so much ink that's been spilled and there are so many varieties of interpretations. And you'll see different ones exalted in different commentaries and study Bibles. And so that's where, again, the more you read and the more um, interpretations you hear and you understand, I encourage you to listen to them, test them, test what I'm saying. You might hear um, others of our pastors and teachers here at the Advent saying different things about these passages, and that's that's likely, actually. So, okay. Does that help? Yeah. Just as a question, the beginning sure. of that, uh, as in all the churches of the saints, yeah, it does seem like a universal statement, doesn't it? I think that that's pretty clear. All all the all the all, our churches, all, all, all the churches around the Mediterranean basin. All, the saints are the are the sanctified. Those who are in Christ. All Christian churches. They're just saying they, they do that in all the other churches. So here in Corinth, you can mm-hmm. do that. And the question is, what is it that they do? And so some people will say it means that women don't talk at all. There's no. It, there's total silence. And so that's why a lot of commentators will universalize that and say today in the West in the 21st century women can't even read from scripture in the public assembly you know, during a church worship service. And, and obviously as a church we don't, if we draw a line somewhere it's not there, right? Um, as at the Advent, right? Because we all have women readers, we'll have women, I, I get to preach which is awesome. So you know, th- that mere fact shows that the line for us isn't drawn there. Although there are some people within our congregation for whom we go too far, you know. So, okay, does that help? Well, yeah, Gordon. That, that begs the question um, about, you know, there's no Christian or Jew, there's no mm-hmm. male, female. Galatians 3.28. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. out. Yeah. If there if there's a difference in yeah and that's and that's where that's where a lot of people who say you know this is not a universal statement for all churches in all times and places will point to that passage and say this is in contradiction to that and I think that's true and I think that that passage for me as as an egalitarian you know in looking at these verses if you sort of fall down on these 
different lines. I don't like using the official words to describe the official positions because it's like saying Democrat and Republican. There's so much variation. You don't want to just sort of assume Democrat means you check all the boxes on this side and Republican means you check all the boxes on that side. find those labels to be unhelpful. But for me, again, looking at that, that verse is really helpful. A lot of egalitarians will use that verse to say when looking at Paul's seemingly restrictive passages for women, well, those aren't true because of this. And that's helpful and true, but I think always pointing back just to the one verse is not as convincing when, as when you look at so many of the other verses. And again, within the example of 1 Corinthians itself, in this one letter, Paul has talked about women praying and prophesying in chapter 11. And now he's saying they have to be totally silent. Well, what does he mean? He must, one of those must not be true. And so um, people with a more conservative view on this will say, no, they're not praying or prophesying. But then they have to deal with the Greek that really says they were praying and prophesying. And, um, and then on the other side, for those who say, no, they were really praying and prophesying, then we have to understand, well, what does it mean for them to be silent? Um, and this injunction that in all the churches of the saints, the women are silent. Okay, does that help? Any other questions? We better dig into Yeah, one more, and then we'll dig in. Yeah, I don't this, but no. I'm thinking maybe because I, I won't Nancy Price, you've hit the nail on the head on something that I haven't talked about, but or not today, but I've talked about it in other settings. Corinth, and then also where for, where Timothy is stationed in Ephesus, both had that kind of situation. Um, again, in Corinth, there was the temple to Aphrodite, and so there are a lot of women in the employ of the temple to Aphrodite. In Ephesus, it's the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there, and that was the temple to Artemis. And in the temple to Artemis, um, all of the leaders within the temple were either um, uh, priestesses who were, who were celibate. Um, then there were also temple prostitutes as well. But the priestesses who were celibate ran the whole, uh, celibate ran the whole show. And in their employ, they had these um, men, but the men were all eunuchs who served in the, in the temple in Artemis. So you can kind of see how these newly Christian women with a Greek cultural mindset would have thought, well, this is just how you're supposed to do. The women just take control and do. And so Paul, Paul's really leveling the playing field in some ways. He's, and because there's such freedom for women in the gospel, there's such freedom. When you look at it, um, when you look at the way Jesus is treating women, when you look at, again, Galatians 3.28, this is a different lifestyle for women. This is a totally different option than anything else that was presented in the ancient world. This is real freedom. This is real equality. Um, some of the women were perhaps taking it too far and taking advantage of it. And that truly is what I think Paul is correcting, is that over-excess of freedom. Yeah. So. And that's why, again, why I think he reverts back and references Genesis so much, because he's talking, he talks repeatedly about how the man was created first. Well, again, with this dominance and domineering aspect of the women, they were maybe using the fact that they're life givers, you know, in giving, in that argument of saying, of using their primacy to domineer and um, and take over control, and so saying, no, Adam was created first, and then Eve, and that's a counterbalance um, in terms of origin and source and creation. Okay. Let's move on. Let's go to chapter 15. But come and ask me, it could, because this affects all of us, especially as women, right? This is, those are very important verses for us to dig into and talk about as much as possible. Um, but let's read. We're going to read. I'm going to read chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Paul is getting back to the basics here, um, even as he has talked about so much that was, um, that was behavioral. He's pointed at so much else in the chapters between chapters 1 and 4 and here he's going back to the basics beginning at verse 1 and I'm reading from the ESV now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain 
just short, but one of the things I love about this is um, the content of the gospel. What you hear is the very content of the gospel, of what's being preached. He says it, um, or he's going to say it. He's about to say it. Oh, actually, he's about to say it in the next several verses. We're going to hear it in verses 3 through 11. But this content of the gospel is so important. And he's saying if you forget about the content, then it doesn't matter. Um, Nothing else matters. And this gospel is something that has saved you. There's this past sense in which you have been saved. You stand in this gospel. I love that image of standing in the gospel. Um, Just standing, I think of it too, even as standing um, planted firmly on this solid ground of the gospel, this solid rock of the gospel. It's by which you are being saved. So there's this sense of this continuing salvation. It's not once and stop and one and done, um, but our salvation is continuing. And I think about that kind of, kind of every day. <laughs> um, oh Lord, save me, save me from myself today, <laughs> save me from um, being overwhelmed by the demands of the world, the flesh, the devil. Um, would you, Lord Jesus, save me today? And again, it's that returning every day to the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, so there's this past. Um, reality and the continuing implications of standing in the gospel. And he's, again, encouraging them to hold fast to it because some of them are departing from it in what they're teaching. So let's read verses 3 through 11. 4, and here's the content. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, some of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Here now in these first few verses, verses 3 through through 5, we hear the content of the gospel, the the very core, the very kernel of um, what is essential to the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day. And all of this, twice he repeats, especially about Jesus' death and resurrection, that it was according to scripture. It was foretold in the Old Testament. This was in accordance with what the people of Israel expected, even if they weren't aware of it at the time. Um, They had had clues to point to what would happen. I think, doesn't this sound like the creed to you? Doesn't it sound like what we say every Sunday, whether we're saying the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed? Isn't it amazing, too, in our communion services how um, the preacher preaches the gospel, hopefully, (laughs) but then we get to respond by saying the gospel back. Um, This is our active participation. This is our standing on that solid ground. And so it might seem like something that's rote, especially for people walking in off the street and they walk in and they think, well, that seems weird. Everybody just says the creed all together. And, um, I've even heard some preachers say, well, it seems like a terrible but kind of anticlimactic way to respond to the gospel. Hopefully you've had your heart moved. Hopefully you've been um, encouraged and strengthened by what you've heard from the pulpit. But then to get up and just say this thing by rote, and yet it's such a beautiful thing. This is the repetition back of what we've heard, hopefully, in the sermon, of what we've learned, a reinforcement of who we are as Christians and what we stand upon. Um, this one little aspect of mentioning, there is some significance in mentioning Christ's burial. We don't see um, that we see it in the Apostles' Creed. And that, so there's some thought that maybe this is pro, a proto-creed that Paul says here. It's leading towards the Apostles' Creed, which certainly wasn't um, even in use until the second century, as far as we can tell. But it might be that there was some repetition of this within the Christian communities around the Mediterranean basin. Why say that he was buried? Why is it important to say that Jesus was buried? Well, because it's a way of saying he was dead. We say this in the Apostles' Creed when we say he descended to hell. It's not that he went to hell for three days and there's 
some idea, oh, did he preach to those in prison and in hell? No, the idea within the creed is we say he, went to he-, he descended to hell as a way of saying, no, he was really dead. He wasn't just faking it. He didn't just faint the way the Muslims say. He was really dead, dead, dead. And God raised him from the dead. Uh, um, then we have, after these creedal um, assertions, Paul numbers all of these appearances to the apostles. And we hear about some of these in the gospel. Um, we hear about um, the appearance to Paul or to Peter, excuse me, who's also called Cephas. Paul always seems to call, almost always calls Peter Cephas for some reason, which is the Aramaic version of the Greek Peter, Petros, rock. Um, but it's the same, me- same word meaning. And then he appeared to the twelve, um, suggesting that all of that happened on um, the day of the resurrection itself. Um, we don't know elsewhere that he appeared to these 500 brothers at one time, so it's neat that Paul tells us this. Um, and again, it's how interesting that he says, some of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. We're going to hear him use this euphemism again for, of falling asleep. Um, death for a Christian is not the end. He uses this also in First Thessalonians when he talks about those who have died in Christ. Um, they're not truly dead. They're not dead. They're just sleeping. It's uh, an awaiting for that resurrection from the dead. We hear it also in uh, Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus, if you recall, there's a woman with a flow of blood who comes to approach him, interrupts him on his way to visit the daughter of Jairus, who's very sick. And the daughter of Jairus, in his delay, the daughter of Jairus dies. And he goes into the house. Um, he says, first of all, he says to Jairus, do not fear, but only believe. And then he goes into the ruler's house and everybody's weeping and wailing. This loud Middle Eastern um, grief is being expressed so vocally. And he says, basically, what are you doing? She's only asleep. Because he knows what he's about to do. He knows he's going to raise her from the dead. They laugh at him. And then he goes and raises her from the dead. So this idea of just being merely asleep, again, you can only say that of those who are in Christ, um, of those of us for whom we have the hope of the resurrection. Okay, so he's going to keep talking about this. Some of the Christians have fallen asleep. Um, He's talking about all of these appearances to James. That's probably James, the brother of Jesus. And then last of all, in verse 8, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. That phrase in the Greek, the untimely born, it's not a flattering phrase. Paul is using, it's a very um, graphic, negative statement that Paul is making about himself. And you see his sense of unworthiness, that he, and his sense of unworthiness, and when he says that he's the chief of sinners elsewhere in his letters, he's really saying, he was such a good man by the Jewish law, um, based on obedience to the Jewish law, but he understands himself to be the chief of sinners. Why? Because he persecuted Christians for their faith. Um, because he dragged them off. He approved of Stephen's martyrdom. He went to Damascus, dragged off men and women who were of the way of the gospel um, and brought them back to be, um, to, be, to, to be beaten and even for some of them to die. Um, and so he carries this sense of unworthiness with him in a beautiful way, um, in, not in a groven, groven, you know, I'm going to, I'm gonna. Oh, what's that? I'm gonna grovel about this the rest of my life. No, he just carries with him the burden of his past actions and his past life before Christ. Um, And he's gonna talk about this again in a beautiful way in verse uh, verse ten. He talks about this unworthiness in verse nine. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. And here's how, verse 10 shows us how he lives with himself, how he lives with this um, past thing that he's done and how he understands it now in light of God's grace. And we see him elsewhere, again, boasting about the fact that he's an apostle and asserting so strongly that he, has the, he is an apostle. He is of the status of an apostle and they need to listen to him. Um, but how amazing that he holds that in juxtaposition with his deep sense of unworthiness. And it's grace that reconciles the two. It's grace that allows him to hold the two in tension with each other. The boldness and the seeming boasting is only because of God and what God has done for him. And we hear this in verse 10. By the grace of God, and this is 
another one to memorize because it's for all of us. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This sense of unworthiness um, allows him, the sense of his sin is, is what causes him, again, caused him on the road to Damascus, the, Lord, the appearance of the Lord caused him to get, to get down on his knees. He was flattened out on the road to Damascus when he saw Jesus in all of his glory. And Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was given grace then. Um, he sees that in being allowed to live and then even being given work to do um, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus. By God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Um, grace produces this desire to serve. Grace works within us um, what we cannot do for ourselves. Grace changes our hearts. And this is what he talks about in the second half of the verse. Um, that there is this, yes, there's this working I worked harder than any of them, any of the other um, apostles. And maybe he sees his zeal for the Lord and this work that he does um, in some ways without thinking of himself in it as being, um, as being in correlation to the depth of grace that he received. If he sees himself as the chief of sinners, um, he has received much. Just as Jesus said about the um, sinful woman who anoints his feet, um, the one who is forgiven much loves much. Paul knows he's been forgiven much. He sees that grace of God abounding um, toward him, uh, in him, for him. And so as a result, he, he goes to these extremes of serving the Lord, traveling all around the Mediterranean basin, experiencing all kinds of tribulation and hardship, all for the sake of the gospel. Okay, any um, thoughts about that before I go into verses 12 through 19? As you can tell, I will not get through all of it today. But I hope to get through verse 28. We'll see if I can. Okay, I'm going to read verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's getting eloquent here. Do you hear him arguing with all of the forces of his logic um, and pointing out that how can they affirm in worship in this creedal statement as they speak the gospel back to each other, how can they affirm that Christ is raised from the dead and then not believe that they are each going to be raised from the dead? Our resurrection is dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, so if, we, if they're saying no, these other believers won't be raised from the dead. There is no resurrection of the believers from the dead, as he says in verse 12. Um, you can't say that and still believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruit of what will happen for each one of us. And so all of these ifs, in this short passage he uses seven different if statements to prove um, that how, their, how their assumptions about the resurrection are illogical. If Christ was raised, then we are raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, let's all go home, is what he's saying. <laughs> Forget about it. Also, how could Christ not be raised and all of these people witnessed it? Um, that was the second part of what he was saying up above after having that creedal statement. Um, if um, Christ hasn't been raised, all of those people mentioned up above are misrepresenting God, a lying. And this is actually um, one of those apologetic moves that you can do today. There are people in our, not necessarily at the Advent, I don't know, there might be a couple, but throughout our church, um, not just in the Episcopal Church, but throughout all sorts of mainline churches who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And understandably, within our post-enlightenment mindset, it's hard to say rationally, how is this possible? How is this supernatural thing possible? And yet, um, we see throughout the Gospels this testimony that it happened. Um, and... 
Um, so for those of us who believe, if we believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then we believe that we will be raised from the dead. I find myself often, um, there was one funeral that I had had to lead, and we don't usually, this was at a funeral home, so I didn't get to organize it the way I would have if it was at the Advent. We have some rules about what you can do and what you can't do at the Advent, just like with weddings, you know. Um, and so I couldn't say no to these people because it was their, in, their own setting at a funeral home. But I was, I, was, I was shaking almost the whole time because the children of the deceased man were clearly not Christians. And they got up and said all of these things about their father that he was now with them in the air, that he had, there was just this strange mythology, strange spirituality that they had, but they clearly did not believe in the resurrection. They thought their lives were better and different for having known dad, but they couldn't say with certainty he has been raised, he will be raised from the dead because he died with a faith in Christ. And every time I'm in a situation like that, when I'm with someone who's grieving, they're grieving without hope. And that's the beauty of our funeral service. Whenever I love going to funerals, um, Christian funerals, that, uh, funerals with our prayer book, because you see all throughout it the bright, shining hope of the resurrection, shining through the rays of grief and sadness. Um, if there is no resurrection of Christ from the dead, then all of those funerals are, are just depressing. There's no hope. Um, we just sort of bury our loved ones and say goodbye forever to them and live on in thankfulness for the past and our life with them, but we have no hope for the future. And that is, no other faith offers us that hope for the future, that there will be a bodily resurrection at the last day. So Paul goes on in verse 17, this argument, um, also, if, if Christ was not raised... <laughs> Why bother believing? Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What is, the, what is the point of having a Savior who has died for our sins if he wasn't also victorious over sin and death? Um, then he truly, uh, the atonement doesn't matter if he hasn't been raised from the dead. And that's where we focus on the cross. And yes, always focus on the cross. The cross is at the heart of the gospel. And yet the cross is not possible without the resurrection. And the resurrection is not possible without the cross. They're so tied together it, that even for the New Testament writers, they see it as one and the same event. Um, it's almost like the flip sides of a coin. Um, they exist as one thing. You just see it in one light or the other light, whether you're uh, on Good Friday or Easter Sunday. Um, so again, our sins are not forgiven if Christ has not been raised. If he's not victorious over sin and death, um, then, then the atonement didn't work. Um, the, the resurrection is God's sign of affirmation. It is finished. It's almost as though Jesus says, it, it is finished on the, cry, on the cross. And the Father says, yes, you're right. It is finished by raising Christ from the dead. Does that make sense? That how those two are tied together? Okay. And he finishes in verse 19 with this verse. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Again, I think of um, some in our mainline denominations where there isn't this real belief in the resurrection. Why bother? <laughs> Why go to church? Why do anything if there isn't this hope? And I think sometimes in contrast we find churches where it's all about um, this pie in the sky and what you do on earth doesn't matter. That's the whole, I'm safe, so why do I even need to live like a Christian? And we get that, I actually think we get that a lot more in the South than in the North. In the North you see people saying, no, I really believe it and I'm really going to live it because um, there's only 5% of you instead of 80% of you. Um, but here there's, there, there is, <laughs> sorry, it's just true. Um, there is more of this sense of, well, Jesus will forgive me so I can do whatever I want now, <laughs> which is, problematic. Um, but again, yes, there's this hope for eternity. And yes, we know we're saved because we believe in, in Jesus' gift of his own life poured out on our behalf. But that affects how we live now. Um, and in the reverse, Paul is saying, what does it matter how you live now if you don't also believe in the future? And these Corinthians had lost this hope for the future. They didn't have this hope for the future. So then why bother in the present if you don't have this hope for the future? Um, okay. I don't have time to read verse 20, but I'll get to it next week, I promise. I'll do less recap next week. Um, I'm going to say a prayer in just a minute. Um, any thoughts or questions?
about these passages and how beautiful they are, aren't they? These verses about the resurrection. What a great way to end this letter. Um, I do also want to make, before I pray, I want to make an announcement as well, which I forgot to make at the beginning. But um, you know that my time, my time is coming. No one knows the day or the hour. But <laughs> I, plan to, I plan to teach through, um, through uh, February 6th is the Monday, right? That'll be my last week of work, um, you know, assuming she doesn't come early. And so with that in mind, then we're going to... Con- Still, continue, you all are still welcome to continue to meet, and um, I'd love for you to continue to meet because uh, Virginia Hornsby will be teaching from the Gospel of John, and Virginia is joining us for this week and next week just to kind of get a sense of uh, what we've been looking at and, and who we all are, and she'll be picking up in John chapter 17, which I think is so perfect for going into Lent. Um, so looking at John's passion narrative, which goes on so long and so beautiful, and his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. So she'll begin on February 13th in John. And so I won't be with you that day, um, but I will keep you updated about my own status. <laughs> um, so please say hello to Virginia, and if you don't know her already, um, but she's a wonderful teacher and has been teaching in John for a while now. You've been in John for a couple of years, I believe, right? So. Thank you, Virginia. Well, let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words to us through your servant Paul. Thank you, Lord, for um, the way your word is life and the way we get to respond to your gospel by repeating the truth of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you that um, indeed uh, he came, he uh, died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. We'll say it again and again, we'll affirm it again and again. And even as we continue to study these verses next week, um, and as we prepare for next week, and as we reflect upon this week, would you cause this truth, of our own resurrection and the hope that we have, the true and certain hope that we have in you um, to come alive in our hearts. Would you give us glimmers of this hope like rays of sunshine shining through the clouds of our ordinary days. Um, Thank you, Lord, that we live our lives in light of eternity and that in you um, we will be raised from the dead at the last day and we can trust you in this. So we thank you for this. We, We praise you, we glorify you, and we ask you, Lord, to send us out today with your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.